glad that you are here this weekend. Uh, a few years ago, before um, my youngest had graduated high school, I don't remember the exact reason we had done this, but uh, the twins and I jumped in my car and had to go up to Park Meadows for something. And I can't remember what it was, but I remember us uh, three only being in the car. And it stands out in my mind because it was very rare for just the three of us to be going to the mall. Usually that was something I would do with Chris. Uh, I don't think that my boys ever enjoyed doing that. So maybe it was for Mother's Day or something. We were going shopping real quick. And um, my kids have grown up in the era of cell phones. And normally when we're driving, their faces are buried in their cell phone. And normally when we're walking, their faces are buried in their cell phones. And that's just sort of the way that it was. And so in order to like get beyond that, I was trying to figure out ways of just, I'm having a conversation. They're giving me the, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. And so um, we turn off the highway, Yosemite, um, onto uh, the little the little road that runs in front of the mall and then onto Park Meadows Drive right there. So we're coming in on the side where Nordstrom is at and they both have their faces buried in their phones and I'm trying to talk to them, they're not listening and I come up with one of the greatest ways to get them ever, man. They're looking down, I come to the light to turn in and I yell, did you guys see that? They both look up instantly. I do a great big U-turn, illegal as all get out. Right in the middle of the street, I floor it like I'm chasing a car. I roll down the window. I'm yelling at the top of my lungs at whoever. I can't believe it. You need to pull over right now. Now, the person on my twins come out. One is like, Dad, slow down. Dad, what are you doing? Dad, we're going to get in trouble. And the other one's like, don't let him get away. He has no idea what happened. But he's like, get him, get him. And it's, I, if you know them, you can guess instantly who was what and who was doing what. I get right back down to the end of that street, driving like a maniac. They're all tore up. What's going on? What's going on? And I turn and I go, surprise, just a joke. <laughs> totally got both of them. Till this day, they remember that. Man, I pulled it off so good. They had never seen me lose my temper like that. I pulled it off so well, my sons, I mean, their phones are on the floor. They're like, this is better than anything on a telephone. <laughs> Although I think probably one of them is trying to record it so he can get it leveled up on the internet. Totally got those guys to buy into the idea of rage, of anger, being mad. Totally get down to the bottom of the street, man. I had such a good time with it. I'm laughing at them. Now they really are mad at me for tricking them. And the only reason I even tell you that story, I'm sure every family has their little stories that they would tell that to them mean much more than it does to everybody else. But it's just simply the point of where the message is going to go. Um, to me, what I was doing was totally just trying to get their attention, trying to play with them a little bit, uh, trying to up the game. Trust me, they scared me many, many times. They would have said at that moment in time, uh, Dad's lost it. Dad's super angry. Uh, Dad's really, really mad. And the truth of the matter is, it was just simply... They didn't really perceive what was going on. They weren't paying attention and certainly weren't really aware. And the truth of the matter is, our series is called When God Seems. Seems being the operative word. When God seems to be a particular way. And this weekend we're going to talk about when God seems to be angry. Because a lot of people tend to think that God is angry. That the way that God deals with the world, God deals with people... And the way that God is is that he's mad or he's angry or he's upset. And nothing could be further from the truth. If you really knew, if you really understood, if you really saw, those would not be words that would come out of your mouth. Now, let me just do this real quickly. When I was writing the message, I thought, you know, I'm going to make that statement. 
Uh, God only seems to be mad or God seems to be angry. And really, man, theologically speaking, if you're uh, like into what I'm saying, if you catch it, if you're ahead of me in the message, there'll be two questions that you've probably been asked if you're a believer. You've probably had to deal with it sometime or the other. You may have not had a good answer for it. So I just wrote them down right here. Here's two big questions when it comes to this idea of whether God is angry or not. Um, you ever been asked this? Why would a loving God allow fill in the blank? Like it's usually right after a tragedy, right? And God knows in our world today, there's one every other day. Maybe every day. Why would God allow a school shooting? You ever heard that one? Uh, why would God allow rape? Why would God allow incest? I'm just, I'll name the difficult one. Why would God allow murder? Why would God allow fill in the blank, right? Why would he allow cancer? Death. Why would he allow, um, why would a loving God, that usually, that, that's usually described in it too. Why would a loving God allow fill in the blank? You ever been asked that question before? Yep. Now, if you haven't been asked it, I bet you've heard it. My question to you real quickly is how do you answer it? Do you ever attempt to? Do you ignore it? Do you walk away from it? Do you just roll your eyes? Do you just feel like you, know, you don't really have an answer, but you don't like the fact that somebody is like, Psst. how do you answer it? Um, I'll just real quick throw this uh, out to you. When you're trying to explain theological truths, listen, using big words mostly doesn't help people. So when you go like the immutable holiness of the eternal father, dude, you don't even know what you're talking about at that point. It doesn't help to try to use big words to explain things that you have trouble understanding yourself. You're better to try to um, use, here's what the Bible does and here's what God does. When God wants to explain difficult truths to us, he doesn't use massive words to confuse us. He tries to give us situations or understandings of things that you and I relate to so we can get our minds around the truth. All right, Paul is asked the question about marriage, uh, or excuse me, about the love of God, and he uses marriage in order to describe to people what love is supposed to look like. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband like you do to the Lord. He's trying to explain great deep truths in things that are everyday understanding. So like if you're ever asked the question, why would a loving God allow? Here, I've got one, and this is, this is great for dads this weekend. Depending on where you're at in that spectrum. Like if you're a new dad, you may not understand this fully. But if you're in the point where you've mostly raised your kids or you've raised them, You'll understand this completely, and so I'll try to answer this question. Why would a loving God allow by using a truth you'll understand? A father with adult kids. When my kids were little. There was not a problem I couldn't solve. If they came home from school and were hurt, man, I could pray. I could put a Band-Aid. If I had to involve myself, I could insert myself in a situation. Like a situational comedy on TV, it would take me at a max 30 minutes to solve a little kid's problems. Yes or no? But tell me if this isn't true or not. When they became adults, it's much harder to parent adult children than it is to parent little children. And for those of you who are parenting little children right now, here's what you think. It's going to get better, right? No, it's... it's <laughs> I'm going to tell you hard truth right now. It won't cost you as much, but it'll hurt twice as bad. And here's why. When they're little, you can get in the way. 
you can tell them no. You can stop them from or you can stop somebody else from. But when they become adults, all you can do as an adult is stand there at times and love them. Follow me real quick. And what that's called is being an adult. Because no adult wants their parent to come in and tell them, you can't do this and you can't do that and I won't let you spend this and I won't let you talk that. Yes or no? You wouldn't let your parents do it, your kids won't let you do it, and their children won't let them do it. There's revenge. (laughs) But it's the way of the world. So let me explain that question on why does God allow. Somehow there's an assumption that God is complicit in those things. But the decision my children make, I'm not complicit in any of it, especially when it's a bad decision. In fact, I hate it with everything in me, but I'm forced to have to allow it because they have choice and they're adults, yes or no. And to do anything else would take away from them the fact that they're adults and they have freedom and it would ruin my relationship with them, yes or no. Ah, and here's our father who created us with the ability to choose too. And here's what the Bible says, mankind chose to go astray. We all did. And God, as a good father, hates murder. Hates suicide. Hates a school shooting. Despises incest. Trust me. But is forced to have to stand there while his children make their own decisions. Yes or no? And what we tend to think is that, oh no, God interferes with those things. The only way you can be an adult and have freedom is if you also get the opportunity to make the mistakes with your choices. And it's much harder to be a father to an adult than it is to a kid. And so that whole thing of like, why does God allow? Dude, pull it back into your arena right away and don't let somebody suck you into some theology that God is like helpless or doesn't really care or far removed. God is right there. Ask that question maybe. Where was God when he was right there hurting with the person? That's where God is, just like a father is. Maybe the second one just, um, I get asked this from time to time. Uh, Why in the Old Testament did God seem so angry and then in the New Testament become so nice? What happened? Like he woke up on the wrong side of the cosmic bed in B.C. and then in A.D. he got, well, that's kind of the way that it is. Um, The truth of the matter is, I, I did this real quick. In the Old Testament, listen to this. The word wrath is mentioned 152 times. But in the New Testament, the word wrath is only mentioned 29 times. So five times more is it talked about in the Old Testament. But again, the question is, why does God seem to be a particular way in the Old Testament and then seem to be a particular way in the New Testament? Because the Bible says this about God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. So he can't be one way then and then one way now. It has to represent something. And now you just need to step back and just recognize what the Bible represents to us. The Old Testament's the law. The Old Testament is a type and a shadow. It points to the fact that, hey, we fell, we sinned, and God is holy and righteous and was angry at the sin, but we couldn't fix it, so he sent Jesus. And the reason in the New Testament it seems different is because it is different. It's been dealt with through Jesus. God did have wrath. God was righteously angry. God never sinned in his anger, and he took the wrath out on Jesus so that God's wrath is been settled. Here's really 
what the idea is when you're talking about why does God seem angry? What you're really doing when you think that God is angry, what you're really doing, you're in danger of creating a God in your own image. One of the commandments is not to make graven images, not to make a God in your image. And we're cautioned never to turn the holy God, the God of gods, into a God in our own image. And here's what we do. When we respond a particular way, we tend to project that onto God. When we lose our temper, we think that's how God is. When we curse, we think that's what God does. When we sin in our anger, we think that's what God does. And so we build a God in our own image, and then that's why we ask mistaken questions like, why does God seem angry? So let me just give you three things here if you've got a pen or a pencil. Maybe these will help you to get this right in your head. Man, I have taught this for years and years and years, and I'll just say it one more time uh, for this weekend, and then probably again next weekend, and then probably the weekend after that too. There's just the idea without, uh, without messing this up. The number one place that we need reformational thinking is the way we think about God. Because the one thing in life, if you get that wrong, it'll mess up everything else in your life. It'll mess up the way you pray, the way you read your Bible, the way you go to church. It'll mess up the way you treat each other. It'll mess up the way you feel. It'll mess up the way that you act. It'll mess up what you do when you're in private and when you're in public. And if you get that right, everything else follows correctly. The way you feel about yourself, the way you treat people, the way you raise children the way you see money, the way you see the world, uh, the way that you forgive people. It's all based on if you get the way you feel this way right, it makes everything this way go right. And if you get this wrong, it messes up this. So let me just kind of show you when people say that God was angry, or that God is mad. I'll just give you some examples. Like if God wanted to use his wrath to get people, he could have done it. How about Adam and Eve? The story of Adam and Eve is just simple. Uh, it's the story of creation, the story of the first man and the first woman, and the story of what God's purpose was for them. And here's God's purpose for creation, for mankind's creation. It's to know God and be known by God. That's it. That's really it. Uh, man was created with the ability to watch over and to get that things can just be taken care of. So God puts him in a perfect place and tells him, here's your job. Take care of it then. Take care of it. And man does a Pretty excellent job of doing that one thing. But God realizes it's not good for the man to be alone. He creates the woman, brings the two of them together, and then gives them really just, just one simple command. In this garden grows every kind of fruit tree, and in the middle of it are two particular trees. One is the knowledge of good and evil. One is the tree of life. If you eat from the tree of life, you'll live forever. But if you eat from the knowledge of good and evil, God said you will. That's pretty simple. I mean, that's not that complicated. I couldn't mess that up. Or could I? And the first thing they do when God turns his back is to run to the knowledge of good and evil. And the enemy is there to tempt them. And he makes them believe that what God said is not exactly what he means by that, which is how the enemy works. He just takes a little bit of truth and twists it. And if we go for it, man, it messes everything up. And the man and the woman ate of the fruit and their eyes were opened. They lose their innocence, but in so doing, man, they also gain fear. They gain corruption. They begin to lie. They begin to hide. The Bible says that God continued doing what he always does after this incident. He came to talk with them in the cool of the day. And when he got there, instead of finding the man and the woman waiting for him, like always, they're hiding. God knows this. So he calls to them, Adam, where are you? Eve, where are you? There's no place to hide. 
They come out, only this time, uh, before innocent, not realizing they were naked. Now they realize it and they cover themselves over, the Bible says, with fig leaves. It's really an introduction to how religion works for people. Something to cover us when we get in front of God. We use religion to do that a lot of times. They get in front of God and God says, Hey, uh, where have you been? Uh, Well, we heard you and we were afraid, so we hid. Uh, We were naked, so we hid. Who told you you were naked? Well, the woman listened to the snake and the snake. And it just begins a downward spiral. All right, stop. I'm paraphrasing a story, but just stop. All right, if God's angry and God's mad and justified in doing it, he can kill them right here, right now. Yes? It's over. It's done. It's taken care of. A blot in history that you and I will never know about. I mean, if God was like, uh, you know, just trying it out, he could have started over from scratch and no one's there to say anything to him. God could have done a lot of things instantaneously. Uh, His next move, I think, would totally reveal his heart. And God does these three incredible things in light of what the man and the woman did that most people read right over and they never recognize it. But I say it really tells where God's heart is when it comes to us. These three things are what God did with Adam and Eve. The first one, you'll find it in Genesis chapter 3. It's 15, 21 through 23. Uh, This is God talking to the devil And he says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And then this is prophecy. So this is in the garden. This is before Moses, before Noah. This is before uh, anything has taken place, man. This is God prophesying before anything else happens. He's going to fix what has taken place in the garden. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And it's a prophecy about Jesus and the devil. And here's what it means. You'll strike out and you'll be able to get him. You'll hit his heel. You'll get him on a cross. But ultimately through the cross, he's going to crush your... He's going to give you a mortal wound you'll never recover from. So listen to me real quickly. The very first reaction that God has to our sin is to prophesy that Jesus is going to come and make it all right. If God wants to get them, I mean, the proverbial lightning bolt is not fast enough. He's personally there. He doesn't have to dispatch an angel to do anything. He can just go, that's it. And maybe just the words are enough. The weight of judgment could fall on them and kill them instantly. And yet God prophesies. The very first thing he does is to prophesy after questioning them. It's not to respond in anger. It's not to get on them. It's not to rebuke them. He prophesies. The enemy will strike Jesus' heel, but Jesus ultimately, through what the enemy does to him, will crush him, give him a mortal wound. He'll never recover, and I will make this right. That's actually, I think that's fantastic to see that right there. Uh, And then God does this second thing. The Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. And let me just stop here. It's the first time anything's been killed. Real quick. And who did it? God did it. And what it really points to is that blood is going to have to be spilled to cover over what's happened. And that's what Jesus did for us. And then the Lord God said, look... The human beings have become like us. Who's us, by the way? Uh, 
Trinity. Uh, knowing both good and evil, what if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, eat it, then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. Now real quickly, um, people tend to think God's reason for kicking them out of the garden, I, I forgive this, this is horrible, this is terrible. Um, I'm not a watcher of it, but I saw this one. The Simpsons, the wrong, wrong, longest running television program uh, in history, has one with the Garden of Eden in it. It's, it's the history of the world according to Matt Groening, which is a messed up history of the world. And so he shows God at the fall of man, angry with Adam and Eve, and kind of drop kicking them like a football out of the garden. Off they, off they go. But here's, listen, many believers feel that God's response to them, here's the proof that God was angry. God, what, that's not why God kicked them out of the garden. They're in a fallen condition. Here's the truth. Without Jesus, the condition that you and I in is that we were going to bust hell wide open. Hear what I'm saying right now. You would be stuck in death. And what God is just simply claiming here, they are in a fallen condition. Everything now is going to fall apart. Everything now is going to rot. They're going to age. They're going to get diseased. They're going to die. What if they reach out and eat of the tree of life and get stuck in this position forever? It was mercy that God acted on when he kicked them out of the garden. And my only point simply is that the three things that God did when man and woman fell, I mean, the very first thing, to prophesy, to cover, and to keep them from being stuck in that position forever. That's not anger. That's mercy. That's grace. That's a God who loves. Man, the best you can do as a parent when you've got adult kids is to prophesy, to try to cover. You didn't, you never mind, you didn't, it, and if you didn't see it, it's, you had your phone out, and you were down in here, I, yeah. Uh, and ultimately, to try to keep it from being worse, so that they don't get stuck. That's a great parent right there, you agree? That's not God in his anger, that's God in his love. Uh, let me give you another one, this is, uh, if, I mean, maybe one of the most famous stories in the Bible, Jesus, on the way to the cross, talks about... Uh, Many people whose paths he crossed. But the story begins uh, at the Passover supper. And he has a disciple that uh, has agreed to betray him. Um, and and uh, the Bible tells the story that at the supper, um, one of the gospels recounts that going around the table, Jesus prophesies again, one of you will betray. And they can't believe, none of us would betray you. We love you. But Jesus knows. And he knows what's in Judas's heart. And so this is what the Bible says. Um, to the one I dip my hand in the bowl and give the sop to. It's an Old Testament word, S-O-P, sop. The one I give the sop to, that's the one that will betray me. And so Jesus dips his hand. It's part of the Seder meal. Jesus dips his hand in the bowl with bread. And it's a little sauce that he dips it into. And when he pulls it out, he hands it to Judas. And Judas reaches out takes it and eats it. And this is what the Bible says. As soon as he eats it, the devil enters into Judas. It's, there's only two people in the Bible. Remember this interesting little fact. There's only two people in the Bible that it ever claims that the devil inhabited. One was Judas, and the other one is the Antichrist. It's interesting. There's no other claim that the devil went into any 
And he prays, it says demons, but not Satan himself. Judas and the Antichrist. Uh, so the devil enters into Judas. The Bible says that Judas gets up and he leaves and he goes and he meets the Sanhedrin and he betrays Jesus. But in reading that, because we're not Jewish and because we don't live during that time, there's a really cool meaning in the story. And the Bible is filled with, with dual stories. Like you'll read it this, but if you understand what it means, it actually has a greater meaning. Do you understand what I mean by that? There's a greater meaning to it. So for a Jew living during that time, taking the Passover meal, the honor of being given the SOP, S-O-P again, meant that uh, you were being honored at the meal. It was not to be given to someone uh, just like, you know, hey, it's your turn. It, that person was, was being favored, was being lifted up, was actually being, um, was being, being singled out amongst everybody else. And here's, here's what it meant. The person who's conducting the meal, if there's anything wrong between that person and someone at the meal, this is the opportunity to make things right between the two of them. And so the master of the banquet would reach into the bowl, and whoever he hands this to... He's lifting them up in front of everybody and he's making a statement. If you accept this from me, if you take it in the spirit that it's given, everything that's wrong between the two of us can be right right now if you want it to be. And here's what I think it means. One last time, Jesus is trying to reach Judas. One last time before Judas gives his soul away. Before it is done for eternity, Jesus is reaching out to Judas. Now, if you are a person who is like, hey, everything is preordained, so he didn't have any choice but to go and betray Christ, uh, you probably use big words when you try to explain why God allows things to happen. But if you, I'm funnier than you're giving me credit for right now. Um, tough crowd. Uh, here's, here's the thought that even if Judas was preordained, it still is within the character of Christ to be reaching out to him and trying even for the one that the devil has marked yep, that's good. to say, I love you, and if you'll take this in the spirit that I mean it. And here's all I'm trying to say to you. Here's the simplicity of this statement. Jesus said, I don't do anything, and I don't say anything that I haven't heard and seen my father do. So if you want to know how God feels about anything, all you need to do is read about Jesus. When the woman's caught in adultery, that's not Jesus being nice, that's the Father's heart being revealed. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, that's not Jesus showing off, that's how much the Father hates death. And when Jesus reaches out to Judas, that's not Jesus just doing dinner. It's Jesus showing the Father's heart for even the most hardened person. Like if you'll receive this in the right way right now, everything will be okay between the two of us. And so many times we think of God as being angry and we just don't get it, we don't see it. it, it we've been faked. The wool has been pulled over our eyes. You don't get it, man. I mean, the last one and maybe the most important one, the one that I would like... If you don't remember anything else I said, and if nothing else makes sense to you, may this one get into your heart. Let me just quickly talk about the work of Jesus on the cross. 
Again, the Old Testament mentions 152 times God's wrath, but in the New Testament, less than 30 times. I mean, there's a reason for the great difference. It's because Jesus settled the wrath issue. Let me give you these three things that, um, again, I'm not trying to dumb down. That, that would not be the right word. But I'm trying to simplify the work of Jesus on the cross. What he accomplished, why he did it, what it means to you and I. Like this whole, this whole anger, wrath thing. If you get what Jesus did on the cross, you would never be able to claim again that God is angry at you or that God is mad at you or God is judging you or trying to get you. If you got the work of the cross, you would get your thinking right this way so that you could live right this way. So these three things, man, that happened on the cross. Um, when he had received the drink, prophecy was that Jesus would cry out in a loud voice, I'm thirsty, and they'd give him something to drink. When he had received the drink, Jesus said out loud in a loud voice these uh, three words. It is what? What is? His death, his life, what's finished? What, what's, what is it? Is he just saying, hey, I'm done. I give up. I can't take it anymore. It's over. I mean, what is he saying it's finished to? He's saying it's finished to the thing that the father prophesied in the Garden of Eden, that you'll strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And Jesus is saying to the enemy and to everybody who's listening, you lost. I won. This is over. It's finished, man. My work is done, and these people are restored, and God is not angry. His wrath is satisfied. The second thing that happens, really interesting, again, we're Western Christians and miss so much about the double entendre of the story. At the moment that Jesus died, there was a curtain in the temple where all the Jews worshipped. And in the inner part of the temple, right in the middle, was a place called the Holy of Holies where the Spirit of God dwelt. And it was so powerful that no one could go in there except one day a year and only the high priest and only after he made sacrifice for his sin first. The Bible says that in his garment they would sew bells into it so that when he was in there they could hear the bells and make sure that he hadn't died by doing something wrong. This is not in the Bible, but by tradition, they would tie a rope around his leg in case he did mess up in the Holy of Holies because you couldn't run in and get him. You had to pull him out. So listen to this real quick. In this place, the Holy of Holies, there was a curtain that everybody could come into the sanctuary, but no one could go past the curtain because beyond the curtain, God's holiness dwelt. And His holiness judges sin. He can't wink at it. He can't act like it didn't happen. He can't go back and erase history. People have made this statement, God can do anything. No, He can't. He can't remember sin after He's been asked to forgive it. He can't undo history. He can't lie. And he can't do anything that acts against who he is as God. So we have God represented as dwelling in this tabernacle on earth. Really, he asked the question, do you think anything that a man builds can contain me? And yet he lets himself 
part of who he is, his spirit, dwell in this place called the Holy of Holies. And a curtain is in front of it, and no person is allowed to go beyond the curtain. So in fact, God is here, and man is here, and there is a dense, thick, black curtain separating us from God. And the moment Jesus dies, the Bible says, in the temple is an earthquake, and the curtain rips from top to bottom. It makes this particular statement. It doesn't just say it rips in half. It rips from top to bottom, almost like God himself reached down from heaven and grabbed it and ripped it. And what it represents is no longer is it necessary to be separated from the holiness or the presence of God because of the work of Jesus. His blood, as the high priest would do, has made everything clean and new. And now we have access to God. God is not angry and out to get you and his presence will kill you. Jesus took care of that. Last but not least, maybe just... Maybe just like if you don't get it, maybe this scripture will help you understand it. The Apostle Paul in the book of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians wrote this, God did not appoint us to suffer, what's that word? One more time, to suffer, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God did not appoint you to have to go through his wrath. He appointed you or made you or created you or decided that you can have grace and mercy through Jesus if you want it. But then let me double back on my message real quick so that I don't mislead you. Um, is God mad? No, but can God get angry? Yeah, because you can be angry and not sin. And especially if you're right, you can be angry. I've got a pair of socks on. It just, this is an accident. I did not plan this, but it just, it just reminded me. Here's what my socks say. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I've got to take my shoe off. It says, John, can you read that? What does that say? Let her win. She's always right. Yeah. Let, it says, let her win because she's probably right. Let her win because she's probably right. Um, so my wife sometimes... In our relationship, she's very justified in her anger. She's not unjustified. Sometimes I do things that totally bring out um, the worst in, the, the beast in, the tiger in. I don't know what the word is. Uh, she is such a peaceable and calm and... Her presence just brings such peace to my life. But I have done things at time that have brought out the wrath of Chris. And she wasn't wrong. Any married person in here ever experienced that? Where you bring out wrath and you're not, they're not wrong. You are, right? Wrath is a real thing. Wrath actually can be justified. Wrath sometimes is earned and sometimes wrath is completely justified. John chapter 3, verse 36. This is uh, the same disciple that just a few verses before in John chapter 3, probably the most famous verse of scripture that Western believers live by. John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then just a few sentences later, in a message, a letter that's being written, John also makes this statement. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's, what's the word? Remains on them. Look at me real quick. Because of Jesus, God is not just in heaven perpetually ticked off. That's not who God is, and that's not how God operates. But just like there are people in your life who have a wrath against you, and you totally earn that wrath. We, according to the Bible and the truth, messed up, and the wages of sin is death. And you can choose life through Jesus, or you can face God without Him and face wrath. And that's truth. Now, some people, man, divide over that issue on how they teach. Some people want to teach all the time wrath. You're going to experience wrath. Watch out for God's wrath. God is angry and we need to get out of His wrath. Or you can teach this great truth that God's wrath has been satisfied by Jesus. We're not appointed to wrath. And that through Jesus, man, we get righteousness and peace. But we all get to make that choice. And you know what? When you stand before God, it will not be God angry at you. The thing you'll be judged over according to that scripture and according to what the whole Bible is about is what you do with the mercy that God offers. To reject Him is to reject the peace terms. And to accept Him is to accept the peace terms. And if you reject Him, then you have to go and face the wrath. And to accept Him is to accept the terms for peace. Because then when you stand before God, you don't answer for your sin. Jesus answered for you. And that's why the only thing left to do for any person on this earth, listen, Jesus died for every sin. He doesn't have to come back every day and die for the sin that day. He wouldn't have to come tomorrow and die for the sins tomorrow. He died once and for all for all sin. All you have to do is make up your mind of whether or not you want to accept the work that he did for you so that you can have peace with God. Because the only thing left for all human beings to decide is whether or not they want to be reconciled to God. And if you reject reconciliation, then you stand before God without any answer. You will not be able to justify, you will not be able to explain, you will not be able to bargain, deal, or laugh about it. It'll be no joke. And you'll stand without excuse. So as much as everything I said is true, that Jesus died to give you peace, it is also true that without that, man, you will be judged. And you will be judged guilty. And there's no middle ground on that. And that does make the gospel very polarizing, but it also makes it very powerful. Powerful. And we all get to decide what we believe about this. What do you believe? Listening to me right now, what do you believe? It's a joke. I don't get it. There are many ways. That's just one way. What do you believe? I'm not your judge and I'm not your jury and you will not hang or go free because of what I do. It's what you believe. What do you believe? What do you think? What do you say? Do you want peace? Or do you want to stand before God on your own merit and try to explain? You get to decide. Father, thank you for the opportunity right now. The opportunity to tell people about how much you love them and how much you care for them. To try to explain to them in terms that are portable, that you're a good father, that you love us, 
And that, God, you've given us all the ability to choose how we'll live our lives and what we'll do with the freedom. And like a good father of adults, there's only so much that can be done. You can give someone life. You can give someone a head start. You can show an example of the way to go. But ultimately, every person gets to decide which way that'll be. The truth of the matter is, God, we all mess up. There's not one person that has lived, is living, or will live that doesn't need a Savior. And you took care of that. You took responsibility for our stuff and gave us Jesus. And your wrath was poured out on Him at the cross. And now there's nothing left except to decide to be reconciled to you through the work of Jesus. How do you feel about that as you hear me say it? What will you do with it? So I want to just challenge you with this right now, that if you've never said, God, I accept the peace terms. God, I don't want to face your wrath. God, I need mercy. God, I need grace. God, I need help. Maybe you're like, Pastor, just pray because I realize I need to pray right now. I need that. Or maybe you're just not convinced. But what do you decide? So just for this moment in time, if the Holy Spirit speaking to you. This is your moment, your time. And you recognize you need God's mercy. You need His grace. You don't need to be convinced any further. Nothing else needs to be said. You're in that camp of, Pastor, I just, I need to pray. If that's you, and you say, Pastor, when you pray, pray for me, because I need His grace and His mercy, and I need it right now. Just raise your hand up right now. Just remember me when you pray. You bet, you bet. You bet, you bet, yep, yep. All of our campuses, all across right now. No campus pastor will embarrass you. We won't make you stand up. We won't send you to go do something. It's really between you and God right now. We're just trying to facilitate whether or not you need his mercy. And if you say, John, that's, that's me. I'm gonna pray for you right now. My words are not some pastoral words that can get something done that you can't. I just simply stand up as a leader right now to try to lead you to truth. And so while I pray, if this is what you want, just say yes, that's it. So Father, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner and I need help. God, I don't understand everything about theology, but I do recognize if I have to stand before you without the work of Christ, I have no excuse. I'm not good enough, fast enough, smart enough. God, I can't change what's been done. Truth is, I was born into it. I live with it and I'll die with it and I need grace and mercy. I need your help. 
Thank you for loving me enough to care about me, to save me, to help me. God, I just surrender to that right now and accept the terms for peace. Amen. Amen. And if you meant that, God heard your prayer. If you meant it, you don't need religion. You don't even have to do anything except just simply to say, God, thank you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for caring for me. Now, there's a whole life that God wants you to receive and to have and to live. And then all of our foyers, man, is information on what that life looks like and how you receive and walk in that life. Again, it's not religion. It's not confirmation. It's not what you do. It's just simply trusting him. It's a relationship. And the information is just how to have that relationship. If you want that, on your way out, stop. You can ask any of the people out there in the foyer wearing the lanyards and they can help you. Thank you for listening to me. Have an awesome Father's Day.